Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have in the studio today one of my colleagues at Beeson, Dr. Paul R. House. Dr. House teaches Old Testament and Hebrew uh, at Beeson. He's a past president of the Evangelical Theological Society, written very widely in the field of biblical theology. But he's written a brand new book we want to talk about today. I want to introduce you to this book, Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision. Dr. House, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be now, here. Now, you're an Old Testament scholar. Why are you writing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his seminary vision? Well, I'm an Old Testament scholar, but I'm an Old Testament scholar within a theological seminary where we're teaching, educating, forming pastors. And so I have to find models, good models, for how to do my work, and I find Bonhoeffer to be one of those good models. You know, from the very beginning of Beeson Divinity School, we were founded in 1988, uh, Bonhoeffer and his vision for theological education has been kind of a guiding lodestar. When we first started, we read Life Together as a, as a faculty and community. And in recent years, we've devoted entire chapels over a period of a semester to looking at Bonhoeffer's vision. Uh, one, one time we did the Barman Declaration, which he was very involved, that movement of the Confessing Church. This semester, beginning right now, we also are coming once again back to Bonhoeffer. And we're calling the theme of this chapel, this fall, Finkenwalde in the School of Bonhoeffer. And so we want to talk to you about his role as a theological educator. It's, it's one of the things that we know about Bonhoeffer, but it hasn't been overstudied or overwritten about. And you're, you're filling a really important gap in shining the light on that aspect of his work. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's the period of his life from 1935 to 1940, which is five years of short life, lasted from 1906 to 1945, so five years of those 39. Longer than he did anything else, he was a director of a seminary. So I think it's important if we want to understand Bonhoeffer to understand what it meant to him to shape pastors in this setting. Bonhoeffer was ordained in November 1931 and began to minister as a pastor and what we would call a university pastor for uh, some time. In 1933, January 1933, Hitler came to power. Bonhoeffer and his family had been opposed to Hitler's rise to power. And immediately, uh, Hitler began to make changes to all the civil servants, which included the church, um, saying that, for instance, no persons of Jewish ancestry could be um, not only pastors, but serve in the civil service at all. Out of that protest to that sort of uh, movement by Hitler was formed the Pastors' Emergency League. Martin Niemöller was involved in that. That's correct. Uh, Niemöller was really the mover and shaker, the leader. Bonhoeffer was part of it, but not a leader in that movement. Uh, by 1934, Bonhoeffer had become convinced that there was no way for the church to hold together some people opposing on racial grounds who could be administered, who couldn't, some people holding that Hitler was the true leader of the church and that we needed a Nazi theology and could not, people who disagreed could not be in a church with people uh, who held those positions. He was not uniformly accepted. That viewpoint was not uniformly accepted. And so he took a pastorate in London 
in part because he felt out of step with his fellow confessing church pastors and people. And so he was in London for some time, and near the end of that time, in 1934, he was asked to come and start a seminary. He wrapped up his work in London, looked at several models, and then began the seminary in April 1935. Now, we're going to get to the seminary in just a minute, but let's back up to 1934. May of 1934 was the Barman Declaration. Bonhoeffer was in London at that time, so he was not actually present uh, in Barman with the others, uh, Karl Barth, Niemöller, and the others. However, he had been involved already earlier in drafting what is called the Bethel Confession, which in some ways is a precursor, in some ways maybe even a better confession. Uh, it deals much more explicitly with some of the, the crises at hand. Say a little bit about Bonhoeffer and his role in crafting these documents, and then, of course, he did support the Barman Declaration, had it published in the London Times and all of that uh, in 1934. Yeah, I think I'd said he went to London in 1934. He actually went in 1933. And I believe, and you can correct me, it's August of 1933 when they were working on the Bethel Confession. And while he was at that conference trying to draft that important document, he accepted the church in London. Yeah. He had already decided to do that. And the Bethel uh, Declaration was was to, in his mind, to set clearly the standard that the church would not follow the racist policies of uh, the Nazi leadership that they would not follow any government leader ahead of Christ, and that they would stand on the doctrines of the Scripture and of the Reformation fully and firmly. And he felt as the draft got adapted and redone that he could not even sign it. However, the first draft, which is in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works in English, is a very strong one, as you said, and I think would have served the church very well. So uh, the Barman Declaration, as wonderful as it is in in the context of the times, and, and Bonhoeffer felt he could support it, was itself a little bit of a watering down of what Bonhoeffer had earlier written in the Bethel. Yeah, I, th- it, I think he felt it had two key problems, the Barman Declaration. One, it leaves out the Old Testament absolutely which, of course, was part of the discussion. Are we going to have Jewish scriptures? Right. And scholars like Gerhard von Rod got ostracized for teaching Old Testament in those days. And then he also felt it had no protection, even for confessing church Jewish members, much less for Jewish people in general. So he felt like the Barman Declaration, at the very least, though, said this church will follow the scriptures and Christ before it does anything else. Well, um, you've taken us to 1935 and Bonhoeffer's decision to return to Germany from his church in London and to undertake the work of this underground seminary. Now, this was made necessary because of what we've just been talking about, the fact that Christians could no longer be trained in faithfulness to the scriptures in the Nazi-dominated universities of the time. And so if there were going to be pastors trained for the Confessing Church, it had to be done in this kind of underground, clandestine sort of place. And there were several of them. Bonhoeffer's was not the only one, but he became the rector, I guess was the term, the director of this seminary, and it met at several different places. Uh, Tell us about where they met, and then take us through, let's say, a typical day in one of Bonhoeffer's seminaries. The seminaries that Bonhoeffer led lasted for five years. The seminary was to provide what we would consider basically one semester of training. That's because they would have expected the students 
who already have a university degree in theology. They would know Greek. They would know Hebrew. They would know theology. They would have had a year's what we would call internship in a church and would have passed an ordination exam. So they were the seminary was a capstone experience in a lot of ways. And so they would receive these people and they would shape them for about six months, prepare them for a second ordination exam, and then commission them uh, to serve. So in five years, um, Bonhoeffer was able to do 10 of these sessions. The first five were held at the most famous location, Finkenwalde. And they repurposed an old school into dormitories, study space, a place to eat, a place to play music with a large grand piano. Um, this was in a more a country town, really, so that they, a place where they could take walks and recreate. They made a chapel out of the old gymnasium, refitted it. A, a sculptor helped them. They had an artist who helped them think through these things. Uh, a local church met in the chapel uh, on Sundays, and it was at Finkenwalde that Bonhoeffer also conceived of having a group of pastors stay to help teach, to be sent out to the churches, and to share life together, uh, which was the House of Brethren. We this would be kind of like a, a faculty or an adjunctive faculty? How would you talk, think about that? It, yes, it would be like that. It, we have to remember that not just in Germany, but in England, the United States, and, and virtually everywhere else, theological education was going on, that almost always these were single men, and they were all men at these seminaries, um, training together. And so the idea was, before ordination, before marriage, uh, before serving in the churches, they would learn to live together as brothers in Christ, as family, so that they'd support one another out in the churches, and that they would lead the churches to be more like families than corporations. And so the first the first five sessions <clears throat> happened in Finkenwalde, and then uh, that was closed by the Gestapo in 1937, and they moved f- further east to the uh, first two locations, Gross Schlonwitz and Kuslin, and they continued the work only at two sites. Bonhoeffer had taken Eberhard Beitke, who's best known as his biographer and literary executor, as his associate seminary director. He had other helpers, but Beitke was the chief one. And so he went with him, and he was going to be at one of the sites. And Bonhoeffer picked another of his former students who had been in the House of Brethren and who had worked with him, Fritz Onish, to to be at the other side, and he worked between them. And finally, by 1939, um, there was only one site that they could keep going called Sigurdshof, which is in what today is Poland, and Bonhoeffer and Betke had eight students in a farmhouse uh, that didn't have electricity, and by this time, World War II is beginning, and all of the theological students, not just his, had been drafted into the service, and so the work could not continue. But Bonhoeffer did this as long as he possibly could until there weren't students and until the Gestapo closed the last place, March fifteenth, 1940. What was it like, uh, just say a typical day in Finkenwalde, uh, as the students get up in the morning, what, 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 what's the plan of the day? How did they live through a, a common, typical day? It combined, it was an interesting combination of seriousness and friendliness because Bonhoeffer wanted them to learn to have the disciplines of Bible study and prayer. And so the day began in silence. Um, They were to wake and to be silent and then to come to 
a chapel service that was very simple in concept. They would sing hymns. They would read a passage from the Old Testament, the New Testament. They would intercede for one another and for their brothers and sisters in the confessing church. Then there was a half hour of silence to reflect upon the word and to meditate. And then breakfast. But the idea was God gets the first word in our day. We, we listen to him first before we hear from anyone else. And, of course, some of the students didn't like these sort of monastic ways. They weren't used to that sort of discipline um, as university students. There was a little bit of pushback, right? There was in the first two groups, as, as there often will be in the first two of anything. Uh, but he explained to them how important it was to have these disciplines to be a pastor. And many of them realized later on when they were uh, in jail uh, for the faith, being put there by the Nazis, that it was these disciplines that kept them going, prayer, mm-hmm. meditating on Scripture, uh, whether or not they had a written text, and so forth. And also the same for Bonhoeffer, when yes. he, of course, was in prison. Very much kept so. Kept up this routine every day. And one of the goals that the directors of the seminary had set was that the, the students would learn by heart lots of Bible passages and 30 hymns. That was the goal, uh-huh. so that they could sing them uh, at any time and to fill their hearts with praise. That after after breakfast, they had lectures for two or three hours, very serious ones, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer's most famous book was first lectures to these students about what it meant to be a Christian and a pastor. Later on, he gave lectures at the end of his time at Psalm 119. And they did this serious work. They, they did word studies from the Greek or from the Hebrew. They looked into the history and the doctrine that was had been developed. So these classes were held at a very high level, really. They also had classes in preaching, pastoral care, how to lead singing. Betka uh, taught them all of that. And so they had the classes and lunch in which they had time together, and sometimes they had the entertainment of the day, which was someone reading a book and that sort of thing. Then they had recreation study time. What did they do for recreation? They often took uh, walks along the beach, and they went skiing in the wintertime at other spots. They had uh, tea together and discussions. Uh, They played soccer and that sort of thing. So for Bonhoeffer, playing of music and physical exercise and enjoying recreation with one another was an important part of the setup at the seminary. This semester, we have chosen one day during our semester. We're going to call it Finkenball today. And we're going to try as best we can in a very different setting, obviously, from Bonhoeffer and his students. But we're going to try to follow that routine they did at at Finkenwalde. Begin with silence, with prayer, with hymns, uh, worship together, do sports together. Now, I'm anxious to see some of my Beeson faculty colleagues out uh, trying to do sports with our students. But we're going to try to do that and then come back together at the end of the day and give thanks to God for this experience that we've had. I want to ask you a little bit more about the music. And you mentioned the hymns, which I think were kind of the stable core of of their worship in music. But Bonhoeffer had been to America. He had been to Harlem. He had been a Sunday school teacher at Abyssinian Baptist Church. And there he picked up on some of the spirituals, which at that time were not so widely known, even in American culture, as they've become since then. He carried some of these back to Germany with him. And he, he talked about how important that was as a part of their entree into a different Christian experience than the one they knew there. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I think that's right. And I, I, 
I'd conclude the day by saying that after supper, they had one more, they had an evening worship service that was similar to the first one, and at both they would have sung hymns. The American spirituals that he brought with him, and he did bring them with him on phonograph records he had purchased in New York, and played them for the students. And Betke recounts uh, that it was uh, kind of a startling experience for them because they hadn't they hadn't listened to that form of music and they had not heard kind of the the strong sense of sorrow and joy connected to to those songs. So they made quite an impression on them. I can't tell that they ever sang them together, but it was a very important part of what Bonhoeffer was trying to teach them about how music is both theological and experiential. The other thing they did at Finkenwalde that we also do uh, on occasion at Beeson Divinity School is Holy Communion. Yes. Say a little bit about what that meant for Bonhoeffer and the Finkenwalde students. They did Holy Communion uh, once a month. It's, it's interesting that in the morning and evening worship, they had no sermons. But every Saturday, Bonhoeffer had a service and he preached to them. Once a month, they had communion. And it was important to Bonhoeffer that they learn to confess their sins to one another before they mm-hmm. took communion. And he led the way in confessing his sins to another brother. And so he made once a month this communion service, the culmination of the month and their work together, and really a, a, a time where they could have a communion as a group. He saw the seminary as a congregation community of the church. So he didn't say we wouldn't have communion together because, after all, we're not a local church. He would ask the question, if, if, if a seminary is not a work of the body of Christ and not part of the body of Christ, not a congregation of the body of Christ, then what is it? Yeah. What's it supposed to be doing? So communion was very much a part. Let me say a couple other things he did. Uh, the seminary took in people who had been jailed and battered by, by, the, by the Nazi officials. They held retreats for previous um, sessions, students. Um, they held evangelist, evangelistic uh, meetings in local towns. So it was very much a practical ministerial um, outreach aspect of Finkenwalde and the other seminaries uh, as well. Now, Bonhoeffer was, of course, a theologian as well as a pastor and a theological educator in this setting. Talk about his theology of theological education. What was the driving motif behind the way he did what he did? The best way to understand Bonhoeffer's uh, theology comes from his teaching on catechesis to the students, actually, where he said, we start with Scripture. That's what Christians do the revealed Word of God. That's the Reformation principle. Um, and he, he had students from the Reformed uh, camp and from the Lutheran camp in these seminaries, both. But they agreed that the Word of God is, is where we start. Then he said the church is, proclaims the Word of God to those who don't know him and to those who do. So proclamation, then, is a natural result of being a Bible-first, God-first institution. Then he said... From that proclamation comes education. That's a task that Christ has given the church to go make disciples and teach. Then he said instruction is a subset of education, not the reverse, and that the Bible would teach us how to be educators and then to fit any instructional method below that. So the theology comes before the technique. And I think that's where he can give us some of our most important help 
on a theological view of theological education now. Before we started this conversation, you you brought a quote from Bonhoeffer that I had not heard uh, about the Bible and how important it is. Uh, Could you read that for us? Yeah, it's actually from four of his first-term students writing to supporters of the seminary, October 1935. And this is what they said they had learned from Brother Bonhoeffer and from being at the um, seminary. Here's a quotation. The Bible stands at the center of our work. It has once again become the point of departure and the center of our theological work and of all our Christian activity. Here we have learned once again to read the Bible prayerfully. That is the purpose of our morning and evening devotionals in which we regularly hear the word of the Bible. So the idea was that the scriptures come first. And if they do, they will teach us how to do all of our work, including Ministry of Theological Education. Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Christ the Center, and sometimes the Bible and Christ are kind of presented as polar opposites, or you have to choose this one versus that one. I don't think Bonhoeffer had any kind of dichotomy in mind. Of course, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible is God's revealed word to us, and it offers us an access into the very heart of, of Christ himself. Right, and as he makes the point in The Cost of Discipleship, we know next to nothing about Jesus without the Scriptures. And it was interesting to me that in, in explaining what it means to be a Christian and a pastor, and as an explanation of his own theological education methods, he's following the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, the calling uh, or rather the redemption of the disciples and the calling of the disciples and then the instruction of the disciples leading into Matthew 9 and 10. So one of the reasons the cost of discipleship is so helpful to us is because it follows Christ's pattern of ministry and education. So Bonhoeffer's not seeing a distinction between the Christ of history and the Christ of Scripture. And Christ. He is saying the Scripture are giving us Christ and giving us his patterns for life and ministry that are to be followed. If some of our listeners maybe have heard about Bonhoeffer, never really read him, would, would you recommend they begin with a cost of discipleship or life together? What's a good entry point into Bonhoeffer's work? I find the cost of discipleship is a good entry point, followed by life together. I think those are the books he wanted to write to people who wanted to do Christian ministry. And I think he would say that all laypersons are also to do Christian ministry. I think he would say that if you are not a person committed to costly discipleship for Jesus Christ, not only are you not prepared to be a minister, you may not be a Christian at all. He talks in, in his book about people besides the disciples of Jesus, the apostles. So he, he really believes the cost of discipleship is for all. Also, the Life Together book, though it is for um, the seminarians primarily, it also is very helpful and intended to be helpful for Christian households, for Christian uh, parents and families. And it's very helpful because it talks about our day together as Christians, but then also our day alone as we go out and work in the world. So there's a great amount of important information there. And then I would add to it for every Christian um, Psalms, a prayer book of the Bible which helps show how the Psalms are to be prayed and understood and, and lived. Now, you've written this book, Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision, A Case for Costly Discipleship and Life Together. It's published by Crossway. Uh, it's available uh, on Amazon.com, I'm sure, and all the other places people get books. We don't have very much time left on this podcast, Dr. House, and I wanted to ask you to 
as you do in the book, talk about this model of theological education in, in light of our current world of studies and preparing people for ministry. What can we learn from the Bonhoeffer model? Understanding right up front, of course, that we can't replicate it. We're not in Germany in 1935. We're not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But what can we, by an intensive engagement with this model, learn about how we ought to be faithful in our context? I think the first thing I would say is that that he would tell us that all fully Christian ministry is incarnational. It's person to person. It's, as our former student Matt Swell called it, life on life. So if there is no body, there is no church, the church being the body of Christ. And Bonhoeffer stressed the physical, actual moving body of Christ on earth. So Christians will be ministering to Christians in churches, homes, theological education, and so forth. Now, these days, we have a lot of emphasis on disembodied theological education. So that though there's no emergency, we would say we students could do just as well to take their courses online at a distance without another human being touching them. I think Bonhoeffer would agree that if this were the only method available to us, if it were a true emergency, and this is all we could do for the saints out in the world, that perhaps we should do it, but we would not turn the emergency into the norm. That Christian ministry is done face-to-face because, as he said, God sent his son, not a phonograph record. And as I've heard you say, God sent his son, not a video. Um, So I I think we really need to recapture that aspect. I think also for, for theological students, he thought students were responsible to one another as colleagues and to him as a brother and to the staff as fellow Christians. So he didn't think that we were training independent contractors and giving them credentials. He thought we were forming shepherds for Christ's people. And therefore, that when you come to a theological seminary, you're not just trying to get a degree or a credential. You are becoming a brother and sister in Christ, and you're responsible for one another. And I guess the way we put it, in his day, he was asked to accept an industrial technological, pragmatic approach to education. And he rejected that trend for a biblical, theological, wisdom-based approach. And those who supported him were willing to reject what one writer's called a cultural Protestant synthesis. In other words, what the culture has given you as education, you must accept. He did not, he did not agree. He was seeking a biblical model. So this incarnational model, this willingness to as a student, insist on being shaped by your professors and your pastors and your friends is important. And I also think he's a model for teachers that we should have a high standard of our theological preparation and our scholarship. But that does not have to be separated from our love for our students, for our colleagues, for the churches, and our willingness to give our books to students, to give our times to students, and and to walk along with them so they'll know that their colleagues and siblings and learners, not competitors, customers, and people just seeking credentials. What you've just said is one of the main reasons why Bonhoeffer's had such an influence on Beeson Divinity School and why we still keep coming back to him as we are this semester in our series Finkenbalda in the School of Bonhoeffer. I want to encourage all of our listeners to read this book, Paul R. House, Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision, published by Crossway. 
It's a wonderful read. It gives you an insight into Bonhoeffer. You're not likely to find many other, if any other, place. Dr. House, you end your book with this statement. I want to ask you to comment on it. One of the cruelest things the Nazis did to Bonhoeffer was to take away his seminary community. He knew it was precious. It was worth returning from America to rejoin. It was worth preserving in dark times. I like to think that his work did not end when he left Sigurdshof on that cold March day. I like to think he passed it on to others who feel the same way. What is the legacy of Bonhoeffer Seminary uh, for us today at Beeson and in the wider body of Christ? I think at Beeson, the wider body of Christ, it continues to be, do we love God? Do we follow Christ as his disciples? Seriously and sufficiently to love our brothers and sisters who are training for ministry, to invest our lives in them, our resources in them, so that they may do what the Apostle Paul called handing on the doctrine to the next generation. Are we ready to put the kind of care and concern with seminary students that we do with our own children? My wife's, my wife's working in vacation Bible school this week at our church. We wouldn't think of trying to run a vacation Bible school on the Internet. Because we know children need to be shaped by parents, by communities, by people who love them, who will give them example, who will give good examples of character and commitment to Christ, who will feed them and touch them and love them in all the appropriate ways. The Apostle Paul called Timothy, who is a veteran missionary by this time, my son, my child. I think for the next generation, we always have to be thinking of them as beloved children, and hopefully they will think of us as beloved family members. Worldwide, wherever this kind of work is going on, person to person, life on life, I think Bonhoeffer's legacies carried on. I hope that we do it here because we love Christ, because we love his people, because we are committed to the churches and because we're committed to first-rate academic education in a university context. Theological education, life on life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've been speaking today to my friend and colleague, Dr. Paul R. House. He's a professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School, teaches Old Testament and Hebrew, a world-renowned scholar in the field of biblical theology. He's written a new book, Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision, A Case for Costly Discipleship and Life Together from Crossway. Thank you, Dr. House, for this conversation today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.